Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. And hello, I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and we're delighted to welcome you to today's episode. Each week, we showcase vital women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who continue to shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest focuses on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. So today we're happy, very happy, to bring to you Sally Reynolds, who is 81 years old and lives northeast of Sacramento, California. She comes to us through another guest, Frances Fuller, who was our 50th episode. All her life, Sally wanted to communicate with creatures who are different, whose very minds are not like hers. Humans of different beliefs and cultures and other creatures who share our world. At 75, she became a falconer to work with hawks that are recovering from illness or injury. And in doing so, she began the long act of learning to hear, to understand that in order to communicate, you have to listen and to hear. There is much to tell you about Sally, but I believe you will gain so much more by hearing her tell you about her life herself. She recently concluded a 30-year passion project, which is her novel, Ordinary Expectations, 700-plus pages in three volumes. Wow. At age three, she started writing, dictating an edited version of the Adam and Eve story to her doctor father, leaving out the rib. In her 70s, she published three books in small presses, two of which are on Amazon. One is Rapture, about a woman who believes she is turning into a vulture. And the other is Virginia Primitive, which tells of the struggle to save a black family's farm from rapacious white lawyers. Sally, welcome to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. Your life is so full, I hardly know where to start. Well, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we're so thrilled to have you. So where shall I start, Gail? So you say in your 20s and 30s that you suffered a series of traumas and that that considerably shaped your life. So would you like to start there by telling us about your life leading up to that time? Yes. Uh, first, briefly, I grew up in Virginia in the Jim Crow era. My parents were alcoholics. My father was a doctor. My mother was ill a lot. The one person that was my stable, uh, my stability, my base, was a woman named Lila, who my parents had hired to nursemaid me. Now, she was paid to love me, but I loved her without condition, and I still do. And that's the relationship that really has formulated not just my very early years, but has come back. It came back in the 80s to reattach me to both the past and the things that I saw had to happen 
for the future. I spent this until I was 18. I was in Virginia. Um, my mother died when I was 15. She was an alcoholic and died of cirrhosis of the liver. I went away to school and I suddenly discovered myself. I had never done well in school before. Um, everything was boring. We had a lot of books at the house and I knew a lot, but it was nothing that I could be tested for. And in the days when my parents were counting on Lila to make sure that I had a life, of course she wasn't there every day and on Wednesdays and Sundays she was gone and the house was so miserable with these silent suffering people that I would run out into the woods and I became enamored of birds and animals and I began the slow thing of learning to listen. But then when I got into college, I realized that I was intelligent and that I could have a life. Uh, I married, I probably shouldn't have, but I did and had a child, but I was still aiming at a science degree and English, and I was writing all, all this time. And then my whole world fell apart. My husband committed suicide, and in trying to uh, bring myself out of that pit, it was a shock. Um, he was a psychologist, and I knew things were not good, but I was, what, 22? Um, I didn't really know what was going on. And I had this child to raise, and so I never got to finish my higher degrees. And in fact, I was, I was, in, a, I was in kind of a fugue state for years. You know, when you're trying to do something and your brain is only on part of the time, <laughs> the rest of the time it's full of some kind of white noise. I know people used to say, what were you thinking? And I would have to think to myself, I, I wasn't. I would do strange things like put my, put my glasses in the freezer uh, or I'd wake up in the middle of a conversation to realize that I had missed almost all of it. I really was in very bad shape, and I think I survived it. Because of Lila, again, she did come through um, and stayed with me for a while because I, ha I had gone back to Virginia, where uh, the only place I had any family, my father was still alive. Um, but it was so discombobulated. I went from the Midwest where I had black professors and friends and student friends, and I went back to North Carolina and Virginia where I couldn't even go into a cafe with Lila to have a cup of coffee. Mm. I couldn't do that. So I turned around and I went back to the Midwest and I did not, was not able to go back to school. Um, and about this time, my father committed suicide as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I really was under a tremendous, uh, an, a mountain fell on me and I was beginning to dig out when another mountain fell on me. 
So it's taken a long time. And somewhere in all of this, I moved to New York and I began to do things. I, I was continuing to write. I published stories in uh, Prairie Schooner and other literary magazines. I was listed in Best American Short Stories twice and in the Pushcart volume once. And I had a very nice, um, a very nice agent who almost sold the collection of stories, but it fell through and I realized I can't do this. I have to make a living. I have a kid. <laughs> so I worked as a um, teacher. I worked as an editor. And for two glorious years, I worked in a, I worked in a, a geriatric hospital talking to these wonderful older people, mostly women, about their lives in Europe. They had come before, actually they'd come during World War I, so they, it was, they were quite old. And they had these extraordinary lives, and I was taking dictation from them so that they would have something concrete to give their grandchildren. Mm, wow. So in the middle of all of this, I was doing those things, and they were wonderful, I must say. How old were you at that time, Sally? And how old was your child? I was in my 40s. Okay. Well, by that time, my son was born when I was, when I was 22, and I had had another child in the interim, too. So I had a teenager, and I had um, a young daughter um, who was born while I was in New York. Um, and so I had these two children, and... I was struggling to complete the job of waking up, but I couldn't make it. I couldn't make a living. I didn't have the degree to be a really paid teacher. I was teaching creative writing at, and freshman English at Long Island University, and I made some ridiculous sum, like five thousand dollars a year. I was working as an editor for a small magazine, and that was paying more and I was doing the job at the geriatric hospital um, as a volunteer so an opportunity to do some different kinds of editing came up in California so I moved to California and then I rediscovered something I had started when I was young which is when I couldn't stand being in the house with my sad parents I would go outside and I would listen to the birds and watch the animals. And in California, I rediscovered the outside world. And that's when I started my job as my volunteer job as a rehabilitator and when I became a falconer. In the meantime, of course, as you know, I was writing and uh, I was able to finally discover rediscover Lila's voice and that's been what I have been working on largely in this long book so that's that's my life in a kind of Sally can you tell us what can you tell us Sally about the ordinary expectations yes. what is is that the story of your life what, what no, is that covering? it's not the story of my life it's the story of two families in the Jim Crow era. Um, one is black, one is white. 
And two of the people in it, two young people, want to be doctors. And in those days, white or black, girls could not be doctors, not in that place. You'd have to go north or to the west coast. And so there is the struggle of people who are the, the white family um, is crippled really by, you know, generations of having lived in an era of crime, really. I mean, the treatment of blacks and of women was criminal. And so I'm dealing with families who are trying to, again, dig their way out of this. And the main character is, the main black character is definitely based on Lila, but it is not Lila. But of course, in this book, I get to tell all of her wonderful stories. Uh, she had a grandmother who was Indian and a slave, and they were, oh, it was just, I used to just sit at her feet and listen and listen. And so I get to tell her stories. She died in 1983 at the age of 73. And I felt, I have always felt, I want her voice heard. It was so powerful, it was so moving, it was so kind that I wanted her voice heard. So that was that, but the white people in it are not me. I mean, the girl is not me. Uh, the father is a doctor, but not my father. So I have these families struggling. Mm -hmm. They need each other desperately, and yet for the three quarters of the book, they can't really acknowledge the need. You know, the white people can't acknowledge the need and the black people are so afraid that if they lose their job, they won't have the money to raise their children. It's, it's, a, terrible, it's a terrible bind to be in, to know that if you do the right thing, um, you're going to hurt everybody. And so I gave that to both the blacks and the whites. If they do what they want to do, they are going to hurt everybody. And it's a dilemma that it took me 700 pages to get through. Uh, yeah. But at the end, they, they're not, it's not perfect, but they have, the white girl has learned that in spite of her love, she has, she's crippled with this almost inborn, feeling that the black people are less than she is and she learns that she has this feeling she didn't really recognize it she also learns that it's not true they are not less than she is and the black people have to that are in here with her have learned to trust her but she can't have everything she wants and they can't have what they want all of it so it's the ordinary expectations of making a living, raising your children in decency and hope, and, um, and getting through something that is really crippling to everybody, which is the history of slavery and how it was handled in this country. So that, in a nutshell, is my book. It, it sounds absolutely fabulous. You, you talked a little bit about how when you're working with um, the falcons and you're out in nature, you, you learn to hear. 
and to communicate. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you? Happy to. <laughs> I have a red tail, a wild red tail, mind you, who still comes to visit me. And he comes to get some food when he needs it. Um, yes, we. when I was little, I learned to lie still. It's the only time the sort of chatter in my head went away. I'd wake up in the morning and lie very still and listen to birdsong. So I got hold of somebody who could say, okay, that's this bird, that's a cardinal, this is a blue jay, this is a whatever. And I learned that, and now, of course, they're wonderful recordings. But when I was working with sick and injured birds, I generally I picked raptors, hawks and owls and falcons. Um, I, why I love predators is another story entirely, and I'm not quite sure I understand why. But anyway, I did and do, and I would, in order to get this recovering bird able to fly well, because he's been in a cage for a month, two months, he, he hasn't exercised properly, he has instincts to chase, just as if you throw a ball of wool in front of a kitten, it'll chase it but he doesn't know what to do then. So I worked with falconers. They've been working with, with birds of prey for 8,000 years, getting hunting with them and getting them to be hunting partners to a certain extent. And so I learned their techniques and I would work with these young birds. And um, I released several. I don't know how those went. But this last one had West Nile virus, which is a serious virus in birds. And it, it has various, we're learning from this COVID-19 that a virus can have very different symptoms with different patients. And this one, instead of having, going blind or having some of the other, uh, some of the other illnesses, you know, responses to this virus that would have killed him, he lost all his feathers. <laughs> so he was with a vet for a couple of months and his feathers grew back. And she called me and said, I want you to take this, he's a nice bird. I want you to take this little male red tail and you're gonna have to work closely with him because I got him when he was about, oh, less than a month old and he hadn't a feather on his body. Mm. He's got all his feathers, but I want you to keep him until we know he's gone through next year's molt, I mean, this coming year's molt, and see what you can do. So he was a nice bird, but he wanted to be free. So we had our backs and forths. But I learned to watch him. His eyes would change. He, his body language was, was very evocative of what was going on in his head. He didn't make much noise, uh, but I learned, and he, I taught him things that you could teach a dog. For instance, if you want this treat, you have to come and get it. Mm -hmm. And for a wild animal to do that, that's, that's, that's really quite a, quite a step. But we got through that, and then he was on a leash on my fist, and I would drop a, I would toss a treat, and he, he had a leash, and he would go for it. 
Um, and then the great moment is you take the leash off. <laughs> Will he come back to you? And he did. And then he was, we were out, he would hear me open the door and he was in his muse and he would begin to scream. I want out, I want out, I want out. You know, so I would take him out. And then we got to the point where I knew he was beginning to get very antsy and he was going to start hitting the wall and breaking his feathers. So I, I called the vet and I said, I can't keep him anymore. I got to let him go. And she said, do you think he'll come back? And I didn't know, but I let him go. And he did. Mm. He is four years later. He's still back. And so I worked with him. I hunted with him. I would, you know, kick up a, a small prey animal and he would catch it. And then he fell in love with the local lady and I didn't see him for a while. And then suddenly he came back and he was frantic. And I thought, you have babies and you're stuck with feeding them. So I was feeding him two commercially grown, formerly frozen quail a day for three weeks. I think his mate died because he was frantic. And in the years after that, since then, even now, he has, he has young. I know he does. But he doesn't come that often. He just comes to say hi and maybe, oh, whew, I'm tired. I'm just going to sit here. Would you give me a dinner and I'll take it in the woods? <laughs> so, but you have to know. Each move means something. And I'd let him go, and he would disappear. And then, and sometimes he'd be gone for days. And I would go down to the meadow, and I wouldn't see him. I'd whistle, and I didn't even see him come. He would perch on the top of a tree like the Christmas tree angel, mm -hmm. but way away, quarter of a mile, half a mile. And he didn't come, but he, he was saying hi. Uh -huh. And so now he comes, he usually has uh, crows and ravens after him, and they can be very dangerous to a red tail. Um, but he comes, you know, every three or four days. It's really, I really learned patience from him. And that I also learned to shut off the internal chatter because I had to really listen and watch. And that, I think, is the lesson we get when we cross those boundaries. You have to do it with people, too. I mean, it's silly for someone to say, oh, well, blacks are no different from whites. They are, and they have a different culture, and it's a fascinating one. But you have to shut the hell up and listen, or mm. you won't get it. Mm. And they have to listen to you, too. And the bird has to watch me. He knows me better than I know him. I'm sure of that. The bird has to watch me and has to listen to me. I have a whistle. And it's a tune. And if I whistle it and he's around, he'll show himself, even if he isn't interested in food, even if he's doing something else, he'll hear it and think, oh, I better check in. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm anthropomorphizing, as they say. <laughs> but how are you going to interact with another creature if you don't at least partially interpret what you're seeing and hearing from that creature in your own terms. 
So yes, I anthropomorphize. Yes, I know, quote, better. <laughs> but I'm, I've got a task. I've got a task. I was supposed to get him ready to go out and live a wild life. So there it is. The way that you describe your relationship with this red tail is um, it makes me want to read your book because you have a way with words, Sally. There's no question about it. And um, and the way that you think about it is very, um, it, it opens up our minds. And so I, I, it's really wonderful to hear you speak this way. Well, I do write that way. So I, I appreciate your saying that very much. Good, good. So you are, um, you, you've had so much loss in your life, you've had so much trauma, and yet here you are doing very valuable work, and uh, you've become a writer and all. And, and so is there anything that you can, sh any light you can shed that would help our listeners see the light ahead when all is so dismal and, and traumatic for many of them? Well, I think when it is really that bad, as it was for me during my 20s, 30s, and early 40s, I don't know how to break through to people on that. Nothing got through to me much, except animals. And I know you've, you've, heard, you've heard people talk about service animals they do they have a way of opening your your senses if nothing else and your emotions uh, but i think once we are sort of almost on the other side getting out of our own wake is a very good thing getting out of our own heads uh, you're you're having a bad day if you're not in absolute mortal pain can you think of something to do that will either teach yourself something or give something to someone or something else that needs it? Um, I, those are cliches, but they're perfectly true. Um, if, you know, when I was first working with, with animals, I was working in a baby bird nursery. And here were these tiny little squeaking things, hairless, I mean, you know, featherless, eyes were often not open and you can't think about anything else when you're feeding hungry baby birds they have to be fed constantly so i think the same thing is true if you can throw yourself into motherhood i was unable to with my son but i was much better when my daughter by the time my daughter was born 10 years later i have two marvelous children they are very successful. My daughter is a wonderful parent, and she's, um, she works for Intel, and she's been there for 20 years, and she's in the finance department. My son he lives in New York and in Nice, France, and he has his own business. And they are fabulous people. So in my blind way, at least I didn't get in their way. <laughs> I, you know, I can't say that I was a great mother because I was, you know, half out of it most of the time. But at least I didn't throw obstacles in their way. And I was careful. That's deliberate. I was careful. 
you know, I can't give you what you want, but at least I can step back and let you be you. Mm. Uh, it's the only thing I think. And my daughter in this last year, this last Mother's Day, wrote me a letter saying, you keep telling me how I'm a wonderful mother, but you're part of that because without you, I would not have been able to be me. Oh. And that made me feel that she nailed it. Yeah, she nailed it. I'm, that's the only thing. I got out of her way. <laughs> and in a sense, that's also what I did with the bird. <laughs> yes. It's also what I did with the bird. Yeah. I, got him, I got him flying. I got him kind of interested in catching his own food, and then I got out of his way. <laughs> in, these, in these last few minutes that we have, can you um, – I, I know we talked a little bit uh, in our conversation before about the joys of the aging brain. And do you, you want to just um, explore that uh, for a moment with us? Yes, because that is really something I think, I, I think about a lot. Uh, my aging brain, yes. I don't know about other people's, but it's a very irritating thing. You're talking along and you look up at the person you're talking to and you can't remember her name. Uh, what happened? And there's a word right on the tip of your tongue, and it's gone. And certain spatial relationships don't make a lot of sense to me anymore. But the thing that's so wonderful is it slowed down a little bit. So I'm not in such an all-fired rush anymore. I can slow down and be patient and listen mm -hmm. and watch mm. and wait. And it, doing really tough crosswords, acrostics helps because I look at it and I think, oh my God, I couldn't possibly do this. And then if I sit there for a while, the brain kicks in slowly <laughs> and things come up, they come bubbling up. And the same thing was true of writing this book. I would wake up in the middle of the night and smack my forehead and say, ah, I've got to go do this. And I'd get up in the middle of the night, I'd have an inspiration. And here's one, Gail, that's for you because I told you that I started writing at three by dictating to my father the story of Adam and Eve without the rib yes he gave me the information but only recently did I mean after we talked and I realized I didn't dictate to him I dictated to the woman who was my grandmother's companion <laughs> it was gone all these years I've said to myself I dictated to my father no, <laughs> I dictated to Miss Bessie, <laughs> who very patiently took it all down. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Things can come up out of nowhere, and they have been sitting there growing on their own, and you can bring them up into consciousness as long as you are willing to say, okay, I need a minute. I may need a week, but what have I got? I've got time. Sally, I'd like to ask you if the, um, as you're maturing and you're very much in a reflective mode, if you, when you think back on those early times living in the Jim Crow era, do you understand things differently or, uh, or better? Yes. And the real understanding that I can come to is the part I played in it as well. The unconscious 
um, contempt that we have for people who are different from us. I think that basically most of us think, you know, okay, we have the answers. We've got the answers. This is, and we don't. And I would, I sort of heard myself say things to people and, and you can do this with children too. It's, it's abhorrent. You, you treat them as if their brain is only half formed. And with children, it is only half formed, but it's what they've got. And with people of other cultures, they have perfectly wonderful brains. You're just not listening. You're assuming and you're repeating thoughts and reactions that you were taught as a child. Yes, that's the only message that I have from that era, and that is we could all do it. We could all stop and say, whoa, wait a minute. What did I just say? What did I say to her or him? Did I ask him to come? Did I say, will you pick me up at such and such without saying, "Um, you know, I know you're busy. Uh, Do you have time that day? I just just making an assumption that, you know, your, your needs are more important than theirs. And I think that's a very adult white. That's what I think. Wow. Thank you so much, Sally, for being with us today. It's, it's been a, an eye opener and an ear opener. <laughs> Thank you ladies so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> Well, you you made me focus on what's going on as opposed to just experiencing it. And that has been very important for me. And I really feel honored to be part of your your community. And I thank you. Thank you, Sally, for joining us today and for joining our community. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts in our Facebook group at Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined and become an active participant in our community and join us at our Zoom events. Access our weekly Wednesday podcasts. If you know a vital woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us at womenover70.com. We'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.